which gives me the right to ask questions. And when I ask questions, I expect response, right? But it also allows you to ask questions. So what's going on in Thailand? Well, some of you look new to me, so a little bit of history. Um, we went to Thailand initially to work in a, uh, to teach in an international Christian school in downtown Bangkok. Bangkok is an enormous Asian city, lots of people, 11, 12 million people, something like that. Um, we were there for 12 years, but while we were there, we got introduced to the Lahu people. The Lahu people are a, a tribal, a hill tribe people that originally migrated down from uh, southern China. Yunnan province is a very mountainous, deep valley uh, province which has literally a hundred different tribal groups, all different languages. Uh, even the Lahu are split up into about 20 different dialects of language. Because in that area of the world, communication between one village and the next village was, was rare. Because it, you could see that village over there, but you not, might not be able to get there unless you travel for about three or four days. So the, the villages became isolated. At any rate, many of them migrated into Burma, and several from Burma came into Thailand. Uh, there's probably in the world a million Lahu people, some of which are here in the U.S. If you live in Rochester, Minnesota, or in, uh, I forget the name of the town, in, in North Carolina or Visalia, California, you'd run into Lahu people. They, they came over as refugees some 20, 25 years ago. We have about 100,000 of them in Thailand. There is a church among the Lahu. Uh, missionaries came to the Lahu in Burma uh, over 100 years ago. Uh, basically, the American Baptist missionaries, William Young being the first, um, they were evangelized. Unfortunately, there wasn't time to do any discipling. It was just evangelize, baptize, and leave. And as a result of that, there wasn't any clear teaching, and the gospel became corrupted, to put it bluntly. Um, I talk to people who claim to be Christian, and they don't understand even what that means. I, I would ask them, how did you become a Christian? Oh, my parents were Christian. And that happened over and over and over again. So they don't know. And for instance, I would ask a pastor, if somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to become a Christian? Usually the answer would be, come to church. That'll do it. Do what Christians do. And so there was no idea of faith alone and Christ alone. There was no idea of the grace of God. And when we began to understand that, because I used to take weekends and school breaks and go up and talk to these people and do some teaching uh, while I was at the school in Bangkok, I began to realize maybe we can help. And so in January 2006, we moved up to Chiang Rai, Bangkok, uh, Chiang Rai Thailand, which is way up in the north, uh, where there are lots of Wahoo people. And we were introduced to two brothers, and they began to introduce us to various 
Lahu people. We visited many villages. I pro probably 50 to 75 villages we've been in and stayed in there and taught in there and so forth. Well, now it's come to the point. Now let me back up a little bit more. We were over there for a few years and my son Ben and his family decided to come over and they came over with the intent of helping us minister to the Lahu people. Well, it really turned out to be the reverse. I was helping him uh, because he took the initiative to start a foundation which gives our organization um, what do I want? authenticity in the Thai government. We could pay salaries, we could own land, we, we, we would have a, a real statement with the government. So Ben did all that, and he did all that because I didn't want to do it. Uh, he, he knew who to ask, and he has a terrific ability of just meeting people who could help him do this. Um, he's very social, he'd go into a coffee shop and he'd meet somebody and, and, and this guy has an idea, hey, you could do this and this and this. And Ben brought all these, all, all these ideas together and these people together and started the foundation. That allowed us to expand the ministry. Our focus is still on Bible education. That's what we do. That's what we're trying to help the Lahu people do. And that's what it's come to. We've taught enough so that they are doing what we did. And that's what you want, right? Trying to work yourself out of a job. It's, it's coming to that. My, re my replacement is in place. My Lahu partner is doing 90% of the teaching now. We started with what we call a PET program, the Pastors Evangelist Training, but the pastors and evangelists didn't come. Other believers came. And I taught maybe three or four different groups, and then we had to come home um, to take care of my wife's older sister in 2000, at the end of 2019. And so we were home for two years, and Charlie, my partner, took over. And he'd been through the program three, four years, so he got it and he began to teach. And now what's happening is as he's teaching, people are knocking down his doors. I don't, we don't have to go out and find the students. They're coming to him because he, he's Lahu. He knows the culture. He knows the language. And he can, he's a gifted teacher. The trick now is, and, and what my focus is now, is to try and train other teachers. Uh, Charlie's a bit overloaded. He teaches three groups in three different villages, three days each month for 20 months. And he's, he's got two people that help him now. One is his son, who teaches uh, in one particular village. Uh, his son will teach one day, and Charlie teaches two. In another village, uh, uh, another friend of mine gathered a group together and asked Charlie to come down and teach, and Charlie does, but he, my friend Jacob, he teaches one day, and Charlie teaches two days. So some of this is being turned over to the Lahu people, which is great. That's what we want. So my goal is to be able to train up more teachers that they can go out and teach others. And what we've got is a group of about 10 potential teachers, and I meet with them every month, for about two days.
and I try and go through the lessons and I try and teach them teaching methods and they practice. So for instance, we come to the uh, story of David. Uh, that's one of the 25 lessons in, in this curriculum, David. So over here I tell one person, all right, I want you uh, to teach about David's life from the time he was anointed until the time he became king. What did David go through? Tell the stories. And I would tell another person, tell us the story of the covenant with David. What is the covenant? What's the covenant about? And I, I asked somebody else, tell us the story of David and Bathsheba. And then the last one, what are or what is the application of those stories to us as New Testament believers? And we do that with 25 lessons where we have the stories and what's the application? What are the truths for us as New Testament believers? And basically the truths having to do with David is what we talk about really coming from the story of Bathsheba is confession or con conviction Confession, restoration. How was David restored in his relationship with his God? Is that important for us? Sure it is. Because we sin. What happens when we sin? What are we supposed to do? How do you know you've sinned? God has to convict you, right? Don't, don't let anybody come up and tell you you're doing something wrong or you're, you're in sin if they don't show it to you from the word, by the way. No, don't let anybody do that. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit uses the word. What did Nathan do when he went to David? What did he do? He was God's spokesman. He told him a little parable, Right? And David got angry. What? That, that man should be drawn and quartered. Nathan says, you are the man. David was convicted. Samuel comes to Saul when Saul sinned. What's the problem? Saul wasn't convicted. He said, I'm doing okay. He doesn't really listen to Samuel. So it has to be conviction. David confessed. And in Second uh, Samuel, it simply says, David confessed, I have sinned. But you read the confession in Psalm 51, and you really get the depth of David's heart. And sometimes read Psalm 51 and compare that with 1 John chapter 1. And you'll see a lot of similarities. And you see that's what our heart needs to be when we've sinned and we need to confess. What was David's heart? Oh, restore to me the joy, joy of my salvation. Don't restore my salvation. Restore the joy of my salvation. Take not thy spirit from me. Now, that's not a problem for you and I. But it's the relationship that we have with the spirit. That's what we want restored, I hope. Anyway, we're tr I'm, I'm trying to help these potential teachers be teachers. 
How many, how many of you went to college? Many of you. And, 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 and I like to see the, the gray-haired people that went to college, because when I went to college, the college professors were possessors of knowledge, not necessarily teachers. You remember? You remember that? Maybe you had one or two that were teachers. I, I can remember one particularly. The rest of them were possessors of knowledge. They had great knowledge. Man, it was easy to go to sleep in those classes. They're not teachers. If we're going to teach the word, we need to be teachers. We need to engage the students. That's why I like to be down here. I can look you in the eye and say, are you with me? And I ask questions, all kinds of questions. We get to the story of Noah, and I ask obvious questions. Questions like, how many people got in the ark? Eight. Why? Why did he get in the ark? Well, first of all, there is family. Yeah, they didn't want to die in the flood, right? They believe, yes. They believe God's word, exactly, through Noah. God told Noah it's going to be a flood. The people that did not get in the flood, how many of those that did not get, get in the flood, get in the ark? How many of those people that did not get in the ark, how many of them were saved? Why? They didn't get in. Simple enough. Can you relate that to situation today? How many people will be in heaven? Barrels of them, right? Why? They believe God's word. They were in Christ. Right? Yeah? How many people are not in heaven who are saved? None. So you begin to ask questions like that because I want people to think. Uh, I love the story of the serpent on the pole. You know the story? Yeah, you know the story? Why did Moses put that thing on the pole and hold it up in the air? God told him to do it. God told him to do it. What a dumb thing to do. I need a doctor. I need a hospital. I need a serum. That isn't going to save me. That would have been my attitude had I been there. And what would have been my result? I'd have died. What did they have to do? Look at it. How long did they have to look at it? It doesn't say. How hard did they have to look at it? It doesn't say. They had to believe God's word through Moses. There's a lot of application in the Old Testament that we need to see that it's for us. First Corinthians, I think it's chapter... Maybe it's Second Corinthians, chapter 7, where Paul says, all these things are written for our example. He's specifically talking about the wilderness, the children of God in the wilderness. So I'm trying to teach teachers. And I thank you for your support for us as we do that. We're trying to raise up more teachers so the work can be spread out and it can move around. Um, 
two of the guys that are, we're working with want to do it in Thai language. They have a, a ministry to Thai people. Specifically, one of them is, is Charlie's son. His name is Achipo. Achipo wants to reach his generation. He's about 25 years old. He wants to reach his generation and younger. And the reason he wants to do it in Thai language is because all these people have been through Thai education. They're Lahu, but they know Thai education, uh, Thai language better than they do Lahu language. And so Ashipo wants to do it in Thai language. He wants to take the whole curriculum and teach in Thai. Another fellow who's a, a fellow missionary, he has been with us for a short time. He has a ministry to another people group that speak Thai language. He wants to do it in Thai language. Take this whole program and teach in Thai. Great. This needs to be passed on. I think in Thailand, the Lahu language will eventually not disappear, but close to, because the children, most of the children have opportunity for Thai language, Thai education. The older people, no, they don't speak Thai. So we're, we're, we're keeping the Lahu language. So that's our focus. We, we have a leadership team. We have a team with the foundation that sometimes we advise and sometimes we help. Sometimes they ask me to teach different things. Uh, sometimes we run into cultural barriers. You know what I mean? Cultural barriers. We have them. It's just often we don't recognize them because we grow up with this culture. Well, they have a, a, a particular um, barrier, cultural barrier, and I don't know what to call it except for church discipline. They don't discipline. They don't do it um, at all. And one of the reasons is the culture, the Thai culture. Nobody ever gets fired from a job in Thailand. They don't, they don't, you can be as lousy at your job as you want, not show up. They won't fire you. They'll make life miserable for you, maybe. Or they'll transfer you to something else. But they won't fire you. Because if they fire you, they're bringing what we call broken face. They're bringing shame on somebody else. And, and nobody ever wants to do that. And so it becomes difficult to do a church discipline. And so I had to teach on that. Why we do this and so forth. And there was a lot of objection. I said, well, we, we just can't do that. And I said, well, there it is in the scriptures. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take the, your local culture? Or are you going to take the culture of the Bible? Take your pick. It kind of runs into other things as well. Um, time management. When I, I, I try to teach about planning ahead. Uh, that's not part of the plan. <laughs> not part of the culture. I'll give you an extreme example. I had a friend who was, uh, a lot of friends, traveling through, and he, and he, he had arra made arrangements ahead of time with another friend that he would be there at dinner time. And so coming down from Burma, he was going to be there whatever time dinner was. And so, of course, the family all prepared for this man and his wife to be there for, for dinner. Well, he didn't go. 
uh, I forget where else, what else he was doing, and I said to him, aren't you, aren't you going to go to this man's house for, for dinner? He said, no, if we don't show up, he'll know we're not coming. Uh, often, often uh, people will double book because one of them will cancel. Hopefully. Sometimes it doesn't. So we, we did a, a lesson, a whole day lesson, two days maybe, on time management. How do we go about this? Why do we plan ahead? Why do we prioritize? Why do we have a list of things that are important but not urgent? And we have a list over here that are important and urgent. Then we have a list over here that are not important but urgent. And that's the tough one. So I'm driving down here and I get a flat tire. Or, or I'll make it worse. I'm driving in Maine and I get a flat tire. And I call up Mike. Mike, I, I, I need help. I'm up here in Maine, I got a flat tire, I can't, I can't do anything. Now the question in Mike's mind is, is this important to him? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe it shouldn't be. We have to, we have to decide. And Mike's response is, you mean you don't know anybody in the state of Maine that can help you? We live up there. We live in Maine. It's not important. It's urgent. But it may not be important to him. And that's sometimes what they can't put together. If I call on somebody, if I call on Jerry to do something, their response is, he drops everything and comes and helps me because that's a privilege that I asked him. It's not important to him, or it may not be. Culture. Cultural barriers. We have them. They're just hard to recognize sometimes, and we have to be careful. So that's what we do. We're advisors now, and we're teachers of teachers, hopefully. I've never, I've never tried to do this before, trying to teach teachers how to teach. I just show by example. Now I have to do a little bit more than that. People have asked how much longer are we going to be there? I don't know. Lord knows. I got pretty sick this past winter and it began to dawn on us, okay, maybe we're not here forever. <laughs> Complete surprise to absolutely everybody. Um, maybe we're not here forever. Maybe we need to start planning about what do we want to see when we do leave? What do we want in place? What are the goals? How do we exit the best way? And so we're beginning to think about that. We don't know how long it's going to be, but I don't think it's going to be too long. I'm uh, 46 going on 76, so I have to be careful. I'm, I'm, I won't be there forever. So. That's our situation in Thailand. I thank you very much for your prayers and your support. That's extremely valuable to us. Uh, we enjoy your fellowship. We enjoy your, 
just that you take an interest in it. It's important to us. No, not in Thailand. Uh, I'm glad you asked because there is, there can be severe political opposition in Burma. There is political opposition in Laos. Uh, and those are our neighboring countries and that's where Lahu people are. Um, there was a severe persecution, I don't know, six, seven years ago up in the northeast corner of Burma, put on by a different tribe but it was basically against the Christians and many Lahu people suffered a great deal. Churches were destroyed, people were told under the threat of severe punishment not to preach anymore, not to have worship services, not to do that. But in Thailand, it's no problem. No problem. What was the justification for that? People that were doing that? I, I, my, my gut feeling is that it was economics, which come from China. Are they mostly Buddhists? Excuse me? Are they mostly Buddhists? Uh, no, the tribal people are mostly animists. They're spirit worshippers. The Buddhist people, uh, the Thai people are Buddhists. The Burmese people are Buddhists. The tribal people are not. They're animists, for the most part. Yeah. Good question. And there's a lot of mixture between the two, between the spiritism and the Buddhism and the Hinduism, and it's all convoluted. Any Catholicism up there? Yes. Yes, there is some. Not, not much, but I think it's mostly due to the French influence in French Indochina. And that came, came our way. There, in the tribal people, there's a few Catholic churches, not much. Yeah, they're there. Mormons. No. Yeah, yeah, they're there. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, um, I'd like to discuss, Ephesians 1 and 2, I'd like to discuss with the Lahu people just to show what God has done in the area of salvation. Um, because generally speaking, they have kind of a works-oriented salvation. They've got to do something. And if, Ephesians 1 and 2 are trying to explain to us, no, you don't have to do anything. God did it. So chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 3. I, I don't know about that. Um, the people who claim to be Christian, yes. The, the animus, I'm not sure. And that's another cultural problem. The chief spirit, the word that they use for the chief spirit is Gusha. And the Christians have adopted that word for God, Gusha. So you go into a 
a village that has that does not have any sense of Christianity at all, and you talk about Gusha, they have a warped sense of who that is and has to be talked about. So that's that's as much as they might know about heaven as a spiritist. All right, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he goes on from there and discusses what many of the blessings are. He, he gives a list here, right? And, and you know the list. He has redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us an inheritance. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's chosen us. He's He's made us accepted in the beloved. All, all these things that he's listed as a result of being part of his family. Right? But what I want you to see, uh, verse 6, uh, what, uh, the question I want to ask is, why did he do this? If you think about who God is, uh, I love Psalm 115, verse 3. My God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. That's my God. So when you ask yourself, why did God do all this? When he can do whatever he wants, he has a wonderful relationship within the Trinity. He's triune. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation. And then when he creates, it falls. Adam brings sin into the world, death by sin, and death comes upon all men because we all sin with Adam. So why did he allow that? Why did he create? Why did he allow sin? And why does he save? Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I love that word accepted, and I, it's a tough word to translate in Lahu. It's a, the concept that God accepts us. Why on earth does he accept us? I'm nothing but a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. And he accepts me. Why? Verse 6, look at it. To the praise of his glory. I don't deny that he loves us. He does. But why does he love us? To the praise of his glory. Look at verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Remember, my God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Whatever he wants. This is what he wants. He wants to show his grace. He wants to reveal himself in such a way that he saves us. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to save any of us. He can leave us all and have nothing to do with it. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. My God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Verse 12. That we, 
who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So those of us that have accepted this terrific benefit, this, this salvation and the things that we get from it, we trust him for what purpose? His glory. Verse 14, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Isn't that marvelous? Now I find it very interesting that he does all that not for the purpose of glorifying us, though we will be glorified, but for his own glory. And you might think, well, that's a pretty egotistical, self-serving idea. Well, wait a minute. He's the creator. My God is in heaven, and he does whatever he wants. And he does this for his own glory. He does this for his purposes. Then he has a prayer for these people that they increase in their knowledge and wisdom of who God is and who the Son is. And then he comes to chapter 2 and gives a very brief, quick plan of how salvation works. The first three verses. We're the Gentiles. You know, we act like the Gentiles. We're sinners. We don't know anything. In verse 4. But God. It doesn't say, but certain individuals did something. God did something. And he explains in verses 8 and 9 what we have to do. God presented his son that we, if we put our faith in him and him alone, we have salvation. It's a gift. That is, was the hardest thing for me to get across to the Lahu people. That salvation was a gift. One time I was in a place where I, I got to John chapter 3, verse 16. And they all recited it. And I said, okay, good. You know the verse. Let me ask you a question. What did God do? It was as silent as it is here. They could not answer the question. They had it memorized. Knew the verse. What did God do? No. Look at the verse. Read the verse. I did a message one time about the gift. In John chapter 3, verse 16, what did God give? His son. He gave his son. I'm not sure how much I would give my son for something like that. Does anybody here have one son? All right. Would you give your one son to die for something? Probably not. You'd go yourself first. God gave his son. In Ephesians, uh, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, what's the gift? Wages of sin is death, but the eternal life is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a... What's the gift? Salvation. Salvation is a gift. 
Jesus Christ is the gift. Eternal life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. I had the hardest time convincing the people it's a gift. It's a gift. It took many days, many preachings, many teachings to show it's a gift. Now you've been brought up that way. You kind of understand what that is. But if you've been steeped in Roman Catholicism, it's not a gift. I have to do something. I remember trying to explain this to my mother one time. And she said, well, I, have, I must have to do something. No, it's a gift. Now, I said all that just to get you to verse 10. Took me a long time to get there, didn't it? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Who's the we? Believers. Right, believers. What he explained in verses 8 and 9. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's a new creation, right? Would you call that a new creation? I was created by Christ Jesus. Now I'm created in Christ Jesus. Uh, a regeneration. Created in Christ Jesus for good work. Oh, well, there's something that comes after this salvation. I'm created in Christ Jesus for a purpose that I might do good works, right? What does he say about the good works? Which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, of all the contexts that we've gone over in chapters 1 and 2, what is the purpose? The, glorify God. The good works are to glorify Him. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father. They see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. That's the purpose. There's a couple of verses in Philippians. Uh, let's turn there just for a minute. Philippians chapter 2. Now, we, we went through the whole process there in, of salvation in chapter 1 of Ephesians to the praise of his glory. According to the counsel of his own will. He did it for his glory over and over. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it talks about the humiliation of Christ. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Became obedient even to the death of the cross. The whole sequence there, right? In, in chapter 2. And then God did what? Exalted him. Exalted him because, he, because of that. Now look down at verse... Um, We'll start verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that interesting? There it is again. Why did Christ go through this humiliation and exaltation? To the glory of God. Go back to chapter 1 in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now that's kind of like the prayer he 
says in Ephesians. That's what he prays for, for these people. That's the way we should pray for each other. We know and we discern his truth. Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. So the idea of knowing and discerning is that we're doing his will. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Which are by Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? It's not only what God does that's for his glory. It's what we should be doing for his glory. We shouldn't do it for ourselves. You know, I can't, I can't stand up here and do this so that you will praise me. Bad idea. That won't go far. Pride will seep in and that will be the end of my ministry. We can't do that. What we do, whether we're witnessing to somebody, whether we're helping somebody, we're trying to be a comfort to somebody, or whatever it is, it's for his glory. That they may see my good works and glorify him. God does what he does for his own glory. We do what we do also for his glory. I hope that can be in your heart and in your minds as you go about doing his business as opportunities come to you you can see that it's for his glory and not for ours let's pray please Father we are thankful for your goodness Lord you have blessed us abundantly far beyond that what we ask or think and we deserve nothing we're sinners and by your grace and mercy you have saved us You've given us new life. You have given life. Sometimes we don't quite understand who you are completely because it's beyond our comprehension, beyond our thinking, and yet you have lowered yourself so that we can know some things. So this we understand, that whatever you do, you do for your glory. And we are to praise you and glorify you in all that we do. We thank you for this group here tonight. We thank you that they are faithful. Uh, We thank you for their prayers and their support for our work. And Lord, bless them, use them for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do I dismiss this group? Oh.